All right. So, I now have this done correctly. Perfect. So we are all okay. showing our perfect technical wizardry and the years in audio that we all have. <laughs> but not working, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We should probably specify that uh, if you can record a 4824, that would be great. 4824. Are you rolling, by the way? Yep. Excellent. Then don't touch it. Okay. But if it is 4824, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk. It might be tempting to forget about or even dismiss sports announcers when talking about voice acting, which is a mistake. Brian Loans, the Fox Sports voice of the NHRA, calls the action, just like a live announcer to Gala. He voices promos, just like trailer actors. He tells stories in the downtime between races and scripted pieces. And on a typical broadcast, he talks for three plus hours virtually nonstop. He has to be believable and take the viewer or listener on an emotional ride and often come back the next day and do it again. That's voice acting. When we first got the script for NHRA Speed for All, it seemed totally obvious that based on the copious amount of dialogue that Brian would have to voice, we would do at least two sessions, if not three. Brian asked to try and do it in one. I may or may not have snickered, but I said, okay. Guess what? Seven hours later, Brian had knocked out all the copy without compromising his voice, flattening his storytelling ability, or losing excitement. And then he wanted to chat after we were done. So we wanted to talk to Brian about it and his techniques and his story really aren't that much different than any other voice actors, save for the career details. Let's talk voiceover, Brian Loans. <laughs> Sounds good. Interestingly, when I pulled you up, it said you're a play-by-play -play announcer. And what's funny is that I said that to Randall, and he said, well, do you really think that you're a play-by-play -play announcer? So we might as well start there. Um, yeah, I do. I think um, it's kind of the traditional two-man and sometimes three-man booth that we use. So you have the play-by-play -play guy, me, and then I work with a guy named Tony Pedragon, who's a, a two-time champion in the funny car category, who is our color analyst. So uh, he is my Tony Romo. If I am Jim Nance, then he is my Tony Romo. Yes, <laughs> that's, how that, that's how that works. Nice. He doesn't throw a tight spiral, though. He does not. No, Tony does not throw anything tight. He's a funny. He's a, he's a race car driver. Most race car drivers are never going to get uh, are never going to get mistaken for uh, anybody that can swing a bat or throw a football. So yeah, right. But you still consider them athletes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the capability that the racers have, and even in drag racing, which is obviously a, a sport that is not an endurance type of activity, but it requires very acute skills that are. I, I definitely consider them athletes for sure. Let me ask you something else about the play by play aspect. Sure. You're dealing with things differently, even in a baseball game, which is a somewhat slow sport. There's downtime between pitches, but there's always action of some sort going on. Yeah. I'm sure some people would defy that, but you, know. <laughs> but you do not. You have these super short events and then a lot of downtime before the next super short event that you got to fill air on and everything else, which led to my question about you considering yourself play-by-play. -play. So how do you prep for all the in-between stuff and just kind of what's your thought process when you're going in-between stuff? 
Yeah, no, what really makes drag racing a difficult thing to put on television is just what you mentioned. Like every other sport really on earth, whether we're talking about a stick and ball game or especially in motorsports, somebody waves a green flag and then the race usually goes for about three hours and somebody waves a checkered flag and it's done. And there's this kind of natural flow to the event. Well, in drag racing, it's all very stunted because we will race a round of competition, eliminate half the competitors, and then they get an hour to rebuild their cars and come back up. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's very interesting because you really have to be selective about what you are going to talk about. Your setups have to be pretty tight. You have to understand that you have a limited time window to kind of tell these stories or relay information. And then you do have that same hour that they're rebuilding their race cars in the pits, I'm up in my broadcast booth running through my statistics and getting together the kind of storylines, if you will, for how I'm going to present the pairings for the next round. And and it's equally difficult on the production side of of the television side of things because they have to basically time this show out where we take a five-hour race and turn it into a three-hour broadcast. Mm -hmm. And so on the production side... I mean, they are timing things out to the to the very second of how many minutes can we give this pair or, or if this pair has two very compelling drivers, maybe they get a minute and 45 or two minutes. And then these other two guys, uh, there's no real stories to tell. So maybe they get 45 seconds to a minute. You know, I came out of the side of the world where I was a public address announcer in drag racing, which is way easier because you get to just go with the flow of the event. Mm -hmm. You get to just move along with how things are going versus having to hit a time window like we do. So that was the biggest adjustment for me was figuring out exactly how to basically edit myself and make sure I am able to be cogent and be entertaining, but also have some information to pass along to the viewers. Incredible. And I was there, so I got to see it all live, listen to it all live happening. And yes, it's a wonderful production, even though I never saw anything on television because I was there. It just kept moving along and there'd be interviews in between and little awards that come up and somebody having a special moment. And the next thing you know, the cars are there ready to go again. It was great. Yeah, there is ample opportunity at a drag race to do those things that you really can't do at an event that's just going to start and end that you really can't interrupt the action for. So it does present some nice natural breaks, but it also can be frustrating when you have eight minutes of cool stuff you could potentially say and you get 45 seconds to try to <laughs> to try to pick through it and figure out what, what should actually make the air. Mm-hmm. It's a sport that does not have the reach of an MLB or NASCAR or anything of that nature. One of the things that's fascinating to me about talking to you to begin with, the stamina that you did in that session that we recorded, what was that first session? Six hours, seven hours, something like that? Yeah, something like that. And the fact that not only did we go that long, I can guarantee you, I don't know about Gillian, I flagged long before you did. <laughs> <laughs> I guess one of the things that's kind of interesting about doing this type of stuff is when I'm not doing the NHRA broadcast stuff, racetracks will hire me or organizations will hire me to come out and and announce at their events. So, for instance, the U.S. Nationals that we just completed, I started at 7 o'clock in the morning on Wednesday morning, and we didn't start making TV shows until Saturday. So I probably had between 25 and 35 hours on the microphone before we even began to shoot our TV shows. And once we got to make the TV shows, that was like going on vacation. I was able to relax. Thankfully, knock on wood, my voice holds up. I'm doing an event in Pennsylvania next weekend for the NHRA, and I leave straight from there to go to St. Louis. And then on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, I'm announcing an event called Drag Week, which is 
kind of a traveling circus show. And then from there, it goes straight to Charlotte. We go right back into the NHRA stuff on Friday. So mm-hmm. knock on wood, I'm, I'm able to maintain my voice. And I always tell people and, and the guys that are coming up or guys that have trouble even making it through a day sometimes, it's really all about breathing to me to maintain your voice for that amount of time. I played the trombone from when I was in fourth grade all the way through high school and stuff. Ah. And that breathing how you breathe and how you kind of move all this air through your diaphragm is exactly how I continue to speak when I'm announcing. And so that's where it is. Guys just blow their throats out on the first day because they're yelling or they're straining their throat so hard. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. I mean, there's a musical theme that runs through almost everybody. And it's just fascinating that that's essentially that was one of the questions that I had and you've just answered it. You actually have proper breathing. Yeah, and I always work standing up, and, and this is a function of where I kind of came from, this, this racetrack in New Hampshire where I started doing this when I was a kid. The room I worked in was tiny, and, and I would basically be wedged in a corner, and there's nowhere to put a chair. So, mm-hmm. And to this day, I am always standing up. Uh, I feel like standing up is another thing that's important because guys will slump over in a chair all day, and again, you're not going to be able to breathe properly. You're not going to use your diaphragm. You're just going to be hoarse by the end of the day. It's funny because with Tony Pedregon I work with, he sits down and it's fine. It's a totally different approach, but he always looks at me by the time we get done on Sunday. He's like, dude, just stop. You're pacing around. <laughs> You're making me nervous, but uh, that's just my method, I guess. Do you stand for the entire broadcast or in between things you sit down and then stand back up? I will usually stand for the entire broadcast. I don't know. Every once in a while, I'll grab a seat or whatever, but usually I'm on my feet and it's, you're kind of locked into what you're doing. When we did that session for the video game, I was standing the whole time there too. Yeah, my respect. <laughs> it was fun, man. I'd never uh, in my life done anything even remotely close to what we did that day. It was great. And you guys coached me through it in such a neat way, especially when we were working on the multiple kind of intonations Mm -hmm. of all those names. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That was a great device that you gave me that worked perfectly. Low, middle, high disappointment. Mm -hmm. Low, middle, high happiness. Low, middle, high whatever. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was nuts. (laughs) It was great. Actually, for anybody who doesn't know, the game is NHRA Speed for All. Yes, doing very well. My sons are playing it, and my headshot pops up on the screen, and and the magical things that you guys created flow out of my disembodied head. (laughs) (laughs) And to me, they really caught the essence and the thrill of it. They did a great job. It's a game that I think appeals to the casual fan as much as it appeals to somebody who's really hardcore into it. Mm -hmm. And the process of doing the voiceover was an amazing thing. The process of being involved in the actual construction of the game was like a year and a half. Mm. It was just an incredible undertaking when these guys start something like that from scratch. It's just mind-boggling. Takes a long time. So were you involved early on? I was. We had a call every Wednesday at 2.30 and sometimes a couple times a week. I was the on-call drag racing dork that would say, no, don't do that. (laughs) Yes, do that. I think you guys might have seen that. We were going to record some lines where it was, Mm -hmm. we don't say that. Right. You know, we need to edit this particular word or that word. Yeah, I actually want to speak a little bit to the session itself because even though you were announcing doing the thing that you were doing, it occurred to me that you were actually acting because you were giving reactions and calling action to plays, I'll call them plays, or or races that weren't actually happening. And you had all the excitement and the disappointment when things went good or something blew up. Sure. So really, it was a big acting job for you. In that sense, I guess you're right. I never thought of it at that angle. But yeah, you're absolutely right. And 
I think when I was driving home or whatever, I was just kind of sitting there in the car silently as one does, I guess, after a day like that. And I was just thinking about that in, in and of itself where it's like I was kind of mentally picturing things where we had to do some of that stuff about somebody crashing or whatever. Mm-hmm. I was kind of conjuring pictures of things that I had seen. So, yeah, I guess you're right. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it was amazing, actually. Really, I think it was one of the most fun directing sessions I've ever had because you brought so much to the table. Besides the fact that you had this incredible stamina that took you seven hours, your voice never once faltered. You never lost energy. You never lost excitement. And you kept the thrill and love for what you do in every single line. Add to that the acting we just talked about and then the improv. You were improving things. You didn't even have time to read the line before you said it. Mm-hmm. You would say it and change it and improv the line as we were going. I mean, sometimes they were whole paragraphs. It was honestly impressive. Yeah. <laughs> that... Um... That's totally a function of just what my day-to-day work is with NHRA or even calling one of these races where it's, um, I wouldn't say I struggle with scripted things. Obviously, in an environment like that, you're working with the script, but my the thing that makes me the most comfortable is being kind of extemporaneous like that and taking things kind of as they come on the fly. A lot of times when we're in the course of making a television show, I'm hearing from a producer or a director in one ear or the other, and we're getting ready to go to break, and all of a sudden, no, we're not going to break. We're going to throw a graphic at you first. And so it's fun for me in that moment when you're clearly taking the audience to a commercial break and then you have to, in the moment, you need to make it sound seamless that actually, before we do that, we're going to do this. And so I think when we were working in the studio, part of that was coming out in those moments that you just mentioned where it was like as my eyes were kind of scanning the page, I'd catch something that in my brain would trigger and say, eh, let's, when we get there, let's do this instead. Yeah, you were really able to put your own personal spin on it. So that makes me think of something else. Because I presume you listen to other announcers. Absolutely. Who are the people that, A, that maybe got you into it? And who are the people that you listen to now that you really draw inspiration from? You know, I think it's a bunch of different things. So, you know, there are these kind of preeminent voices in drag racing over the years. This guy named Dave McClelland, who had mm-hmm. just a godlike voice and a great presence. And he was a, a wonderful man. He, he passed away fairly recently. And he worked with a guy named Steve Evans. And Steve Evans was a, an announcer and a reporter. And those two guys were and still are to some degree like the gold standard of all time. Mm-hmm. And then I'm friendly with a guy named Brett Kepner, who is an announcer that had a career of 30 or 40 years in the sport and doing multiple different motorsports. There's a guy named John Lundberg, who they called Thunderlungs back in the 1960s and 70s. (laughs) That's a great name. (laughs) Oh, it's great. John Thunderlungs Lundberg. John's still alive, and he lives in Arizona, and I'm very friendly with him, and we talk a lot about varying different things outside of the sport. Keith Jackson, I think I've watched hundreds of hours of Keith Jackson's work over the course of his life. And I try to put little Easter eggs in our show sometimes. So like for Dave McClellan, one of his classic taglines, when somebody would smoke the tires or spin the tires of their car and he would say, the presence of white smoke is indicating the loss of traction. So every once in a while, every once in a while, I'll drop one of those like a, a McClellan line, and it's really cool because people do pick up on them. I'll get an email or I'll get somebody tweet at me and say, "Oh, we heard that. We heard that little, you know, that little nugget you gave." <laughs> to me, Keith Jackson, one of the greatest announcers of all time, and oh yeah, Jackson did a lot of drag racing. Believe it or not, back in the '60s during the Wide World of Sports days, mm-hmm. Keith Jackson was usually the guy they put on those races. Mm. And so I, I look at Keith Jackson's work and. I think Keith Jackson's great gift was the ability to really place gravity on things. Oh, like yeah. he knew exactly like what his speech cadence would be when something was happening or going to happen of high importance. He had this great way to almost slow time down a little bit, and make you kind of lean in and look at it. Mm-hmm. And he also had a cool way 
if you listen to a lot of his work, he has this cool way of kind of varying the speed of his speech, like even in sentences and the way he kind of staccato hits some words. Like he would never say like traction. He would say traction. Hmm. You know, he would, he's one of these guys that would like really kind of dig in on some stuff. So hmm. it's a tool, it's a study tool and it's not to copy somebody or try to pretend that you're going to be them. But I think if you're in a creative space or environment, like you need to have all these different little influences you can look at mm. and pull from a little bit everywhere. When I was a kid and I started doing this, I worked with a man named Mike Williams at New England Dragway. And Mike, a spectacular announcer, just a spectacular man. He was great to me. We became very good friends. And he was one of these local guys. And mm-hmm. he taught me so much. A lot of the foundational things I do today, I learned from Mike. People you never meet, but you're able to kind of look at their work are definitely influential to me for sure. Did you ever go through the phase of, I don't think I have what it takes? Oh, yeah. You know, I got out of college and I was doing all this stuff on the side and I was working regular jobs. I graduated college with a journalism degree and a commercial driver's license because I worked at the fleet garage on campus. The CDL paid exceptionally better than a newspaper job, (laughs) which I didn't want to have anyway. So as I was doing all this stuff and I was rising, if you will, in the ranks, I would occasionally be able to travel and do some races here or there. And then I got picked up by this company called the IHRA, which is a competitive entity to the NHRA, much smaller. Mm -hmm. But they would come through New England Dragway every year. And one year they finally said, hey, man, next season we want to have you come out and join our crew and do six or eight events. I still maintain my regular job, but that was like I was announcing these national events for them and it was cool. And by the time that company really began to peter out about 2010 or 11, it was kind of a shell of its former self and it was really hokey. And I kind of just got disillusioned and I decided, you know what, I don't want to do this with these guys anymore. In my mind, I always wanted to do the NHRA stuff because it's the big league. But I was at peace with the fact that I had become an IHRA national event announcer. I had worked with great people. I had traveled around the United States and Canada to do this thing that I never thought I'd have the chance to do. And so I just kind of said, okay, this is good enough. I'm not having fun anymore, so I'm going to step back. And I did for a couple of seasons. I just kind of stayed in the region and worked at different racetracks. And I was really kind of okay with that to a degree. And then I got a shot with the NHRA kind of out of the blue in 2013, and that changed everything. Mm-hmm. Two-part thing I'm curious about. One, when you just started asking people if you could announce at different tracks, or how did you even start down the path? And in your conversations with other people who didn't come out of it necessarily as an athlete in a sport, what are some of the paths that you've seen other people take that you know of with quote-unquote traditional voice actors? There are common paths. My path is interesting in that it's, as one of the guys, Brett once said this to me, says, kid, you're the last of the gunslingers. And uh, <laughs> so my path is the same path that a lot of the guys had taken before me, but really has been so cloudy that I don't know if anybody behind me, the next guy coming behind me is going to follow the same path. So effectively what happened was in college, we had a motorsports club and we had this little Volkswagen that we would go road racing with. Mm -hmm. And so the newsletter for this organization we raced with said that they were looking for an announcer. At that point in my life, I had never harbored the ambition of being a professional announcer. All I wanted to do was write for car magazines. That's really what I wanted to do. And so one of my buddies said, hey, man, you should do this. You're funny. We have a good conversations. He said, you'd be good at this. And so I went and I went to this road race and I announced the day and I, hey, I'm, I had never done this before. I'm thinking I'm killing it, right? And so at the end of the day, the guy who runs the racetrack came up and he said, you got five minutes? I said, absolutely, because I'm thinking I'm going to get the big praise job here <laughs> my first day. And he said, you've never done this before, right? I said, absolutely not. He goes, I knew five minutes in. I went, oh, no. Um, and so... But the guy was great. He said, listen, your enthusiasm is perfect. Your excitement's perfect. He said, you clearly 
in an overarching way, you understand what you're looking at, but he said, you are totally screwed on the details and you need to prepare. And so I did. Then I got rule books and got all this other stuff and I was studying all that. So the next time I came in, I knew a little more and a little more. And basically, road racing was a thing that everybody else in that club liked to do, but I always loved drag racing. I grew up loving drag racing. My dad is a drag racer. It's just been part of my life. Mm -hmm. Once I got a few of those under my belt, I got the confidence to reach out to a place called Lebanon Valley Dragway in New York, which was about an hour west of where I went to school at the University of Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. And I contacted this guy named Glenn Grow that ran the racetrack. And I said, hey, uh, I'm the SCCA announcer, and uh, I'd like to know if you have any openings at your racetrack. And so he invited me to come in on a Saturday, and then I started basically working every Saturday or occasional Fridays, but pretty much every Saturday out there when I was in school. And then when I went back home, I would work at New England Dragway. And then it turned into a thing where I was actually working at both tracks at the same time, and I would finish up at Lebanon Valley and then drive till all hours of the damn morning to get to Epping. And I'd sleep in my truck at Epping for the weekend until the track manager took pity on me and gave me the keys to the gate. So I'd let myself <laughs> in and I'd actually sleep in the race control room over the course of the weekend to do my homework and stuff there. Wow, That's the basis of the path. And then when these outside entities would come through the racetrack and they'd say, hey, man, we got a race in Atlanta in a couple of months and I need somebody and you sound pretty good. Would you like to come do it? And so I'd start getting these pop-up opportunities. Mm -hmm. And then, then the IHRA thing happened. I did some work for a Hot Rod Magazine, put on a series of races, and I kind of became their guy. And my name appeared in Hot Rod Magazine a bunch. So all of a sudden, people started to ask, well, who, who is this guy? Mm -hmm. Should I hire this guy too? And and that's legitimately how all this thing got picked up steam. And the last thing I'll say is my NHRA opportunity came because I was announcing a race in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And this guy named Bob Fry, who was the lead announcer for NHRA for many, many years, had retired, but he would still come down and do some of these what we call nostalgia drag races. Really, it's old cars and it's all about history. And so I had never met Bob in person. The guy was a legend to me, a hero. Mm -hmm. And he came in one day and he waved to me through the glass. And then an hour later, he walked into the announcing booth and he said, uh, who the hell are you? <laughs> and uh, I, I told him who I was. And as luck would have it, the very next weekend at New England Dragway, my home track, was the very first NHRA national event there. And so he made a couple of phone calls on my behalf to the office in California. And they invited me in for a tryout. And... It was almost like cheating. I can tell both of you this because if they had called me to do the tryout, I would have taken it no matter where it was. But if they had sent me to Topeka, Kansas, I wouldn't have known much about the racers. I would have figured it out. I would have done a good job. Mm -hmm. But when they had me in there at my home racetrack right. talking about people that I've talked about for years, I know their kids. I know their, their parents. I know where they live. I know what kind of food they like. Mm. I got done with my tryout and I kind of turned around. And it was a little bit of a mic drop moment. I was like, all right, you asked for it. Now you're going to get it. And, and, uh, and I did. Nice. <laughs> That's fantastic. Do you have any racers in your family now? My dad is still an active racer. He's retired. He had a, a pallet and box business with my grandfather. He kind of sold off his remaining contracts a few years ago, retired, and he and my mom tow the race cars around, and they will visit such exotic locations as New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and <laughs> they have fun. Wow. <laughs> what about you? Did you do racing? I did. I raced with my dad from when I was about 16 to when the announcing thing really started to get busy, and I always joke with people that I was such a good race car driver, I became an announcer, but um, <laughs> it, was, it, was, you know, it was a lot of fun. And, and at the time, I was not like a danger to myself or anybody else, but I couldn't win to save my soul. And I realized that later on, I showed up and it was having a blast with my dad at the racetrack. Mm -hmm. Everybody else actually showed up to win. Right. And that was my problem. I, I was showing up just loving being there. And I was failing to realize that the guy that was sitting next to me showed up to tear my face off, <laughs> which they often did. So, yeah. <laughs> 
It's such an exciting sport, I have to say. When I was there, what was also really exciting about it was that everybody around me knew so much. There were people that had been going for 30 years. They knew what you were talking about, all the people, the history of so-and-so, you know, who was the grandfather of this racer. <laughs> yeah, it was a nice feeling. Yeah. Drag racing fans, to me, are the equivalent of hockey fans. It is a big league professional level sport, but it's kind of third in line, right? I think in American racing, you have NASCAR as the King Kong in the room, IndyCar, and then NHRA as far as a hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Like in professional mm -hmm. sports, you have the NFL and Major League Baseball, and then maybe NBA and NHL. But NHL fans, by and large, are very passionate, and they they know a lot about the game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you don't know anything about drag racing, you think it's just two cars going in a straight line. Mm -hmm. But when you when you learn the things that you actually have to have a trained eye to see, and then you can be impressed by, that to me is the biggest and coolest thing about what we do is trying to educate people just a little bit and get them onto that kind of next level of understanding about what they're seeing. And it's no accident that this guy has gone out here and won five races in a row. It's not luck. It's not a coin mm -hmm. flip. It's that his team is very good. Gillian, you went. You were at uh, Pomona, right? You went to. You came to the Winter Nationals. Is that where you came? Yes. It's a beautiful place. It's uh, you get the mountains in the background, and it's mm -hmm. it is one of the most historic stops on our entire tour. You know, I've been racing there since 1961. It's incredible. IMS man. I mean, listen. Uh, that that place is. It's the Sistine Chapel of, of motorsports in America. I mean, <laughs> Indianapolis Motor Speedway is the unassailed and never will be topped place for people who have never been to Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Just to see it, it is just monstrous it's cavernous it's unbelievable yeah it is it, i mean they're all different i actually was just making a little snarky thing because came from indianapolis so and for a drag strip you know it's it's funny too because obviously a drag strip is fairly simple in its construction it's not like a the multitude of different road courses or oval courses a drag strip is effectively two lanes going straighter in some cases four and so it's the character of the things around that at the facility that mm -hmm. that gives each place kind of its different unique feel. I mean, there are some of the, what we call outlaw tracks that I'll occasionally work at, which are really kind of poorly lit and seedy and mm -hmm. like knuckle dragon basic caveman type of stuff. And then you get to some places that are just giant palaces that we race at with NHRA. So you mentioned that you you're the last of the gunslingers. What's the path now for the people who are coming up behind you, or is or is it even defined? And that's the problem. It's grown over to a degree. And so I've started a program within NHRA called Drag. It's the Drag Race Announcers Group. We open this thing up to anybody. And the idea here is to, one, identify talent, and two, to create basically a curriculum on how to do this professionally or how to do this as best you can. So mm -hmm. the, the program's not designed to turn, uh, I'm not trying to create an army of Brian Loneses running around, but it's just to get people the basics. It's a fundamentals program. And so Really, what I'm trying to do is to identify those local announcers that are really good, that I can help foster some of their ability, and then we can try to help them take a next step and work some regional-sized events mm -hmm. or even have them come shadow us sometimes at the national events. Mm -hmm. You know, there are plenty of guys who feel as though that, hey, well, I've been doing this 15 years at my home track. I should just come do these national events. And it sounds, it sounds like I'm being a big gatekeeper here, but the reality is if you're a basketball announcer, you don't start at the NBA Finals. Right. You start locally, you work your way up. Al Michaels is a great story. Mm -hmm. Al Michaels' book is fantastic. And this is a guy who started doing high school baseball in Hawaii yep. and came up in a very measured way. And I think there's a value in that. I think the amount of stuff he learned over the course of that period in his life was when he was going from the little stuff to the big stuff is important. And the idea of just jumping in the deep end of the pool, I don't think benefits anybody. So I'm curious if any women are interested in announcing. 
Yes. Of the 500 members, I believe there are 25 women that are involved. And there's a woman named Hannah Rickards that we worked with at NHRA. She now works for the World of Outlaws series, a dirt sprint car series. And she is a great announcer, a great voiceover talent as well. And so I'm, I'm hoping that we can kind of steal her back and bring her back into the drag racing fold. But yeah, to me, drag racing is a much more diversified motorsport than any other motorsport on the planet. You know, it's been that way since the sport's inception back in the 1950s. Shirley Muldowney, a multi-time world champion, rose to most prominence in the 70s. But there's Barb Hamilton, Shirley Shahan. The women have been winning at the top level since the 1960s. And... The sport lacks female voices mm. in announcer booths around the country, and there's no reason there shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many great female racers. So that's another part of what we're trying to get done with the drag program is to also diversify the people who are talking to the audience who is made up of people of color that are made up of women. Mm-hmm. So they need to be hearing from those people as well. Yeah, there were so many women in the audience. Yeah, it's a neat thing. Our fan base is just more well divided in that sense than maybe anybody else's in motorsports. And I I just, drag racing was formed into a sport out of a kind of an outlaw activity back in the fifties. You know, these kids would go out there and they'd race on the street and it became like a national scourge. Mm. The hot rod scourge was on the cover of time or life magazine at one point. And when people ask me about why drag racing has never really had a color barrier or a gender barrier, I always tell them it's because when you have a common enemy, and at this point, the, the hot rodder's common enemy was the government that was trying to shut them down, mm-hmm. you really don't care who the person next to you, what they look like, as long as they are doing the thing you love to do and are willing to stand up and fight for it. Mm-hmm. And so I really feel like that's why it's kind of coded into drag racers' DNA that once the gate opens up, everybody's welcome and everybody gets a shot because back in those early days, it wasn't like a situation like stock car racing that started in the Deep South, which had its own problems. It began out West, so you already had a pretty diversified population of people out there and just has carried forward to today, which is one of my favorite things about the sport. Yeah, that's exciting and really nice. Uh, Do you have any of the women drivers who want to be announcers? You know, I've talked to a few of them about it. And at this point, I know Eric Anders, you know, at some point when she retires, says we've talked about it a little bit because she's such a, a great racer and she's a, kind of cerebral. She'd be very good as far as getting people into the seat, right, and, and relaying that style of information. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, rightly or wrongly, the reporter positions have typically been men and women, and the guys in the booth have typically been the guys in the booth. So I think there is definitely opportunity and room going forward for a woman to be up there. Shelly Anderson, actually, was a drag racer of note. She was a champion in the alcohol classes. She actually worked alongside Dave McClelland as his analyst for a few seasons back in the 90s. So it's not totally unprecedented. Mm. It's just been a while. Got it. Well, that will be exciting to see moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. You have to reflect the people that are watching the show. Oh, yeah. The other question I had about that is, it's called drag. You're working on drag announcers. How much of those principles would be for somebody who might want to be getting into sports announcing, period, not necessarily drag racing or even other motorsports? Oh, I think, to be honest, I think it's all cogent. The fundamentals of doing this are no different than the fundamentals of calling a baseball game or calling a football game. How to prepare yourself. We do classes on preparation, which is just simply information gathering, which any good announcer needs to have before you walk in the door. Mm -hmm. There are drag race specific things we talk about, how to deal with situations where there's been an accident or there's an incident. How do you fill downtime? What are some of the effective ways you can do that? Ways to maintain your voice, ways to maintain kind of your your energy level and your presence, stuff Mm -hmm. like that. So listen, it's wide open to anybody. It's 100% free to join. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. There's no cost. So even if you're somebody that has no interest overtly in drag racing but wants to consider being a sports announcer or 
even a public speaker, it's probably a pretty good thing to dip your toe into. And, you know, we do it via Zoom. So if you're stuck in the office that day, you can simply go back and watch the video. I do one-on-one coaching with people. So I have people that will send me clips, mm-hmm. you know, a couple minutes worth of clips, and we'll go back and forth on what they can work on. It's been a really good program so far. That's fascinating. I mean, that's not much different than fundamentally than other aspects of voice acting. You're really kind of following some of the same paths and principles. It makes sense. And I've never actually looked at it through that prism until this conversation today, but it it makes total sense. I mean, we film multiple shows during the course of one of our events. So uh, obviously the main series will air same day or air live. Then we have some of our support series, like the Lucas Oil Drag Racing series. That's an independent show that gets edited post-race, and then we voice it. We basically voice that show but we've already seen the race. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that there is an acting element of that as well. When you know something's coming, right. you really can't give it away. But at the same time, you have to be natural in the delivery of being surprised or shocked or disappointed or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I never thought of that. But but you guys have now made me think that way. Fantastic. <laughs> that is, especially listening to you in session, that is the thing that really clicked for me. Doing video games, I've worked with other play-by-play announcers before as well. Sure. But I think part of what crystallized for me was just largely because of the sheer volume of what you had to do and how you did the setups for everything, the descriptions of the tracks. And those are the things that you really improved on, which was fascinating. Because here's this scripted paragraph that all functionally says what you're going to say, but you were essentially, I've been to Pomona Raceway a bunch of times. I'm just going to give you my own description of it, which was great. You know, and that's something that I, that's my favorite part of what, I do with NHRA broadcast is that type of stuff. So basically, when I first started, I was pretty locked down and and I came in with zero television experience whatsoever. So like when we were doing a scene set for the shows, I'd sit there and I'd type it out and I'd have it. Then I would struggle because I was then trying to memorize the script. And so finally, after maybe the fourth or fifth race, I said, screw this. So I do the same thing now that I did then, which is I basically come up with a word in my head. We went to Kansas when we raced in Topeka. Okay, what do I think of Kansas? So I thought of vast. Mm -hmm. And so then I did the scene set. I just thought of the word vast, and then I just spoke to that word, basically, and tied in the race in Kansas with it rather than trying to script something out. Tony, who I work with, his strong suit is not that, right? So we do these class descriptions for different things, and he writes them out, and he works better in that respect. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just two different types of brain. Tony's a very analytical, like mechanical, nuts and bolts style of thinker mm-hmm. versus, I guess, a maybe a more loose or creative type for me. Mm-hmm. So that method works better for him. But I always bust his chops. I'm like, dude, come on, man. You got to be talking about fire and flames and they're sideways and upside down. And he's always like, it's 11,000 horsepower and the wheelbase is 120 <laughs> inches. And <laughs> so it all works. I, I want to make a cartoon out of it, and he's given a news report, which is probably the way it should be done to educate a fan. But I love that, and I love uh, I collaborate with a woman named Lauren Adams to make our teases, the tease that runs before the race actually starts. And she's an incredible shooter. She's brilliant. And I basically write them and voice them, and then she builds the pictures to the words. And... It's more than you would expect out of a little bitty old drag racing broadcast. We tackle themes. We quote Sun Tzu. We, I mean, we, we've taken some of these things way off into the cabbage, and people really like them. That's fantastic. Nice. I have a question. You talk day in and day out. You talk for hours. When you get home, are you still talking? Cone of silence, baby. Cone of silence. <laughs> uh, I get into the car, and I... Don't even turn the radio on half the time. I just, when I'm driving back from the racetrack, especially like during U.S. Nationals week, I consciously, like 100% consciously, when I would leave the track at night, 
made sure that I did not utter a sound. I needed to grab off a few hours sleep. You're already working your voice very hard. You need to not add to that load. So I would get done at night, go back to the hotel, flip the TV on for a little while, and then go to sleep without uttering a sound. But I do like the silence at the end of the day. Mm. I bet you do. How's that for your family? Uh, Well, typically I'm on the road. So like right now, as I'm home, I'm making all kinds of noise (laughs) as they're trying to live their lives. So that's... that's... Like, oh my God, who's this noisy guy who showed up? Right, (laughs) right, right. How many days are you on the road a year, roughly? Um, I, I think the highest watermark of those was, I think one year it was like 160-something. Now I've slowed down since then to a degree, but it's got to be 110 to 120 at this point, something like that. Still a third of the year. Yeah. Wow, that's a lot. It is. It is. And, you know, it's the 2020, so much remote production stuff got done. We never went full remote. Tony and I were always mm-hmm. on site. They have begun to experiment with a little bit of remote production. They had Tony, our race in Houston this year, they actually had Tony work out of a studio in Indianapolis where he lives. Mm-hmm. And basically they two-boxed us. They put a two-box on the screen and people thought we were standing in the same room. And in mm-hmm. fact, that was a thousand miles away. Wow. That was weird. It was weird and neither of us particularly liked it. Yeah. As all these things are, it was done as a quote-unquote experiment just to see if we can. And I think we all know how that ends up working <laughs> over time. But, but yeah. And it's funny because you're in this position where you're like, I really want this to suck and I want this to be bad so we never do this again. But then you can't because you need to make a good show. Right. You know, you can't self-sabotage the broadcast because you don't like what technology's creeping in. But I have a totally separate question from back a ways. Those early gigs where you're sleeping in your car and going to the next race. Yep. What did those pay? Not much, clearly. You know, when I worked at Epping at New England Dragway, I think the most money I ever made at New England Dragway an hour was like 10 bucks an hour. Oh, gosh. Um, I was an hourly, <laughs> you know, I was an hourly uh, employee there. And then, you know, when I actually started to travel and go out there, that stuff obviously starts to pay uh, better. But, you know, when you're a kid, you, and that's the other thing, too. Like a lot of these guys, even when you get picked up somewhere, they don't know what to ask. They don't know anything. And track operators are... Many of them are lacking in scruples. There's right. not many not many ethics professors. Not many people came out of a, an ethics, <laughs> a professorial ethics career to run a drag strip. I can tell you that right now. So right. Um, you really have to make sure you're beating on these guys, even still to today, to make sure uh, all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I mean, and in fairness to, while I have not known any track owners, having spent a lot of time in Indianapolis and knowing people who were involved in racing, you know, I got to know a little bit. There are a lot of pretty thin margins, too. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. There's, you know, you're one rain out away from a disaster. Mm. You yeah, know, you're, exactly. you're one rainy weekend away from potential financial ruin. So, yeah, I'm not throwing everybody into the same barrel there, but I've. it's like in any profession. I'm yeah. sure both of you have worked with people that you've absolutely loved, and you've worked with people that have left you wondering why you even began to do this in the first place. <laughs> what? In, in, in music and acting, there are people who might take advantage of you? Yeah. Is that, what, is that what you're suggesting? I mean, listen, I've seen the movies. Uh, I've watched. <laughs> Never. Well, you know what? We're going to have to get Randall out to Pomona when you're out there next. Okay. Well, we'll be back in Pomona, California, 10, 11, 12, 13 in November. So if the 11, Ooh, 12. I will be yeah. there then. Boom. We're going to make it happen. Awesome. Yes. Amazing. Randall. Awesome. Gillian. All right. Oh, sure. <laughs> Brian. Yes. Thank you. No, thanks for having me, guys. This was uh, this was a blast. It was really fun, and that session we worked together was 
one of the wackiest things I think I've ever done, and it was a lot of fun. You guys, you guys made it that way. Without you guys, I would have been up the creek, so thank you. Yeah, I'm not sure about that, but you're welcome, and you did just such a fantastic job. Yep, you made it special, that's for sure. It's going to be a great game. It is. It absolutely is. Yeah. All right, everyone. All right, then. Thank you so much. Like I said, a voice actor. And how about that drag school, huh? Gotta admit, you're at least a little bit intrigued, aren't you? Let's Talk VoiceOver is hosted by Gillian Brashear, actor, director, visionary, and me, Randall Ryan, owner of Hamsterball Studios, delivering the world's best talent virtually anywhere. And we also can both be found at www.thevoicedirector.world. If you've got comments or questions or just want to let us know what you think, reach out at info at letstalkvoiceover.com. You can find us at all of your favorite places to get podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Podbean. If they have podcasts, chances are we're there. Thanks for listening, and let's talk voiceover again real soon.